We are at Job chapter 18, and, and I love this, that we get to learn endurance as we study this book, because if you've read through the Bible, this is one of those times that you have a lot of momentum, right? Uh, just going through the previous books, and then when you get to Job chapter 2, it's like, where did the momentum go, right? You were excited, you were journaling, you were highlighting, and then sometimes uh, just this poetic style can really confuse us a little, but we are learning endurance, and we're at this place in the book of Job now where he is defending himself, yes, from his friends. He's crying out to God and he's asking for a hope beyond his present circumstance. And I want you to be confident in asking for a hope beyond your present circumstance that you would know that there is a hope beyond that. As mentioned right now already that God would give you those eyes of faith beyond that present circumstance. And he's crying out for hope. And we learned last week the importance of where we get hope from. You see, hope is not possible without grace. If it wasn't for the grace of God, we wouldn't have the hope that we have today. And yes, we suffer, but we don't have to suffer as those that don't have hope. We get to suffer a different way. We get to suffer from the position of hope, and we get to suffer from the position of grace. I mean, and I, and I really pray that you would remember that through the next few chapters that you are maybe suffering today, but it's not from the position of no hope. You are suffering from the position of hope. And here in chapter 18 now, as Job is crying out and he's looking for a hope, as he's looking for something beyond this life, as he's crying out for someone to, to mediate for him, someone to answer to God for him, someone to defend him before the Lord, as he's looking for that and he's crying out in chapter 18, his friend slides in again. Bildad. And as he slides in again, he slides in with a very strong condemnation as to how, why the wicked are punished. You see, while Job is thinking about all the hope that he can have, if someone were to just stand up before him, before the Lord, his friend comes and provides to him condemnation of what happens in the afterlife or in eternity when the wicked die. And you, you want to know why he does this? He does this because he really, what he wants to do is, he really wants to remind him of what happens if you die a wicked person. He wants them to remind him of the terrors of hell. He wants to scare the hell out of him <laughs> so that he can repent. He wants to scare the hell out of him and he's using the fear of hell for repentance. I'm going to describe the worst case scenario for someone that dies with a wicked heart. Therefore, you repent, Job. But you notice that something is happening throughout these, these chapters is that these, his friends are taking truth and interpreting truth the wrong way. I really want to encourage you tonight that you know how to interpret the Bible. Because if you don't know how to interpret the Bible, it's going to get you in a lot of trouble. And, and I, I, we have to interpret it in its right context. Because if you take truth out of context, you're making that, that, that verse, that, that chapter, that book to serve for your purpose, and that's taking truth out of context. Let the Word of God speak for itself. Let it read from the Word of God in that context. 
and say, Lord, speak to me. And if that truth applies to me, let it apply to me the way it says it in the context. Because we can get in trouble interpreting the Bible, everyone different. What would happen if truth meant something different to everyone else? Would it really be true? Which one is true? It means something to you, and then to this person it means something different. To that person, you apply that truth over here. And, and, and these, these friends of him are interpreting truth and applying it in the wrong context. Why? Because they're motivated by pride. And really, when you're motivated by pride, what you really want is to have your way at the end of the day. You want to be right. Pride makes you want to be right. The last thing you want to do when you're prideful is be wrong. And these men were not counseling to comfort. They were counseling to be right. You see, when you, you, you are comforting someone, you, it doesn't matter if you're right or wrong. It matters are you ready to heal a hurting heart, pointing them to Jesus. And what's amazing about this story is that at the end of the book, Job is vindicated. God proves him innocent. At the end of the book, he's remembered. He's respected. At the end of the book, the enemy is silenced. The enemy is judged. And Job did not lose sight of who was right and who was wrong. And we cannot lose sight of who's right and who's wrong. We must have hope and assurance in what we believe in. I know this is what I believe in, and I know this is why I believe in it. This is what Job's perspective was. This is why I believe what I believe. It was hope in truth that was able to let him clarify his perspective. You want clarity in perspective today? You want to clarify your perspective today in your situation? It's hope in the context of truth that gives you a clear perspective of what's taking place in your life, right? And you don't have to walk with uncertainty. I have hope applied in the truth in the right context. It clears my perspective for what's taking place and who I can trust. Let's go to Job chapter 18. Because it says here, Now then Bildad the Shuhai answered and said, as he's answering now, Job, in this case that Job is saying in regards to Obed, as he's crying out for hope. And he says this, answered and said, How long? I want you to underline how long. <laughs> Have you ever had a friend that gets impatient with you? How long is it going to take for you to realize you see, when, when he starts to, to, they start to really become impatient with them. There, there, there's moments where these friends were really there for Job when everything was going well. And, and they start to get a little impatient with him in their trial. And, and we have to be careful not to become impatient with those people that we love while they're going through a trial. And say, how long is it going to take for that person to learn? How long is it going to take for them to grow up? How long is one of the worst things that you can say to someone that is suffering? Notice that. It's important. Right? Growing impatient. And he tells them this. How long till you put an end to your words? Till you get understanding afterward we will speak. How long is it that you will grow up, get understanding? Verse 3. Why are we counted as beasts? Or do you think of us as animals or ones without understanding in your sight and regard us as stupid in your sight? <laughs> do you think we're stupid, Joe? That we don't know that we're talking about? That you keep wanting to defend yourself? You keep wanting to be acquitted 
of this guilt that is so evident in your life? Notice what he says in verse 4. You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? You who are now allowing your anger now to take over, do you think your anger is going to accomplish anything, Job? You think your anger is going to make a difference? Shall the earth be forsaken for you? Do you think anything's going to change right now because you're angry? Nothing's going to change, Job. Now, from verse 5 to verse 13, he talks about what the wicked will pay for their wickedness. This is what he tells them in regards to the end or the fate of those that are wicked, how they will suffer. Verse 5, it says now, Shall the earth forsake you for, for you, or shall the rock be removed from its place? The light, verse 5, of the wicked, indeed it goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The, the fire goes out, the light also goes out. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. Whether that person has light, whether that person has fire, that's going to go out. They're going to know darkness, they're going to know weakness. The steps of his strength are shortened, his life is short. And his own counsel cast him down. His own wisdom will not be enough. His own wisdom will lead him to destruction. For he is cast into a net, or that person, the wicked person, is walking down a path that is going to only trap him. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks into a snare. He walks straight into a trap. The net takes him by his heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. You see, the person that is wicked only sets themselves up for traps. The person that is wicked is only setting themselves up for failure. Well, is this true? Absolutely. But does this apply to Job? No, it doesn't, because we learn that God counted Job as a blameless man of integrity. Now let's keep reading here in verse 11 and 12, as it tells us this, and it says here, terrors frighten him on every side. This person that is wicked is afraid of every step that they take. Not only are they afraid of every step, but it drives them to his feet, and they're weak now. Verse 12, his strength is starved. He's hungry and is weak for food, and his destruction is ready at his side. He, he is moments away from destruction. And he's talking to him in regards to not only the setup for failure, but also what he will experience. Verse 13, it says, It devours in patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. He is uprooted from the shelter of his tent, and they parade him before the king of terrors. Not only does it take over his skin, he's saying here, but death takes over his life completely. He's living one day closer to death, one day closer to eternal suffering. And the reason why it's so important to know this is because, yes, he's describing what happens to wicked people when they die. There are three major points here that we're learning from Bildad that we must really take note of to make sure that we don't misinterpret or miscounsel someone in their trial. Number one, what was happening in Bildad? He was preaching to the wrong man because Job was already a believer. Job's trust was in God. And he was preaching this message of what happens to the wicked man when they die to a man that already had fear for God. Bildad was preaching to the wrong man because Job was already trusting God. 
Number two, what we learn is that he preached with the wrong motive because there was no love in his heart. He preached with the wrong motive because there was no love in his heart. Now, what is, he, is, is what he's saying, is it true? Absolutely, it's true. Yes, it's true. This is what happens to the wicked. However, he's preaching it from the wrong motive because there is no love in his heart. That leads us to point number three, as what we learn from Bildad, is that our heart should be tender when we are talking about the eternal fate of the wicked. We cannot preach judgment. We cannot preach fire. We cannot preach brimstone with a hard heart. We must always talk about the eternal fate of hell and the wicked and the lost. We must always talk about it with a tender heart. With a heart that wants to see someone get saved. Not with the heart of pride, but with the heart of humility. Never wanting to see someone suffer eternally, but always wanting them to be rescued from that place that they are going without Christ. Make sure that we don't preach hell with a hard heart, that we preach it with a tendered heart. Understanding that we're preaching it from the position of love. Yes, we're speaking the truth. We're not going to compromise it, but we will preach it with love. Now, verse 14 and 15, it says, He is uprooted and punished. He's torn from the security of his home and the safety, from the shelter of his tent, and they parade him before the kings of terrors. They're going to now pull him up. He's going to be humiliated. His homes are going to burn down. His roots are going to dry up below him and above him. And verse 15, it says, They dwell in his tent, who are none of his brimstone, is scattered, scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. This person is uprooted. This person is moved. This person is dried up below and above. Verse 17, the memory of him perishes from the earth. He is completely forgotten. He is driven to darkness. He is chased out, it says. And he has no name among the renowned. This person has no legacy. This person, nobody remembers them. Verse 19, he is driven from light into darkness. And he is chased out of this world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwelling. He has no survivors in his family. And he's talking about the sad story of someone that lived, but had nothing to show for after their life. Now we read verse 20. Those in the west are astonished at his day, and those at the east are frightened. Some people cannot believe it. Other people are scared. So, surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him who does not know God. Now notice that not only does he count him as one, not only does he count him as a person here, now his friend Job, he count him as one that is among the wicked. But then look at his accusations because in verse 21, what does he say? He also says this is what happens to those that don't know God. Does Job know God? Job, Job knew God more than his friends knew God. He had a fear for God, and he, had a, he did not have a fear for anything else. Just a fear for God. He had a, a singular fear, and that was God. And he, he lived in wisdom. That's exactly why he's not giving in to these false statements and these false accusations that he is guilty because he knows that he's blameless, and he does know God. He knows he knows God. You know, it's so just interesting to see how many people are living in a state of fear instead of a state of wisdom today. 
You see just a lot of talk in regards to a virus, in regards to sicknesses, in regards to all of this. And, and, and so many people are, are living completely in fear. And yes, we, we as believers, we take precautions and we take just these measures that we want to be safe and, and protect, yes, our health. But at the same time, should we be those that live with fear? Absolutely not. We should be those that live with faith. Those that live in wisdom. Because we're choosing facts over fear. What do the facts say? The fact says that you know God. And you can start right there. Do you know God? Do you know where you're going? Billy Graham one time shared a story of Albert Einstein that he was riding in a train. And as he was going, Albert Einstein in a train, in a very long journey, the person that worked in the train started to go around and collecting everyone's tickets, right? And, and he got to Albert Einstein, and as he was going to collect his ticket from him, and, and he noticed that Albert Einstein couldn't find it. He started to look in his pockets, his jacket, he could not find his ticket. While on the train, he started to get a little worried, and as he was waiting there, he noticed, this is Albert Einstein. <laughs> and he said, sir, don't, don't worry, I, I know who you are, sir. There's no way that you would be here without having paid and received your ticket. It's okay, I trust you. And he goes back and he starts to search everyone else. And then on his way back, he sees Albert Einstein on the ground looking under the sea and everywhere for his ticket. And he says, sir, it's, I told you, it's okay. I trust you. I, I, I know that you would have not gone on this train without having purchased your ticket. Albert Einstein gets up. He says, young man, it's not about trust. It's about direction. I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> I want to ask you today, do you know where you're going? Do you know where you're going? And do you have your trust in the right place? Do you have your trust in the right place? In Psalms 57 verse 4 it says, My soul is among lions. A lie among the sons of men. Look, my soul is among lions. Those people that are about to devour me and those people that are about to tear me up. Who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Notice how his friends devoured him with their tongue. Psalms 57.4, please write that down. Because now in Job 19, Job teaches us, and this is the entire title of the message, that Job trusts in his Redeemer. Do you trust in your Redeemer? Do you trust in your Redeemer today? And this is amazing what happens here, that even in his suffering, he's looking at the Redeemer now. He has a flash of faith and hope on a canvas of darkness and suffering. A little flash of faith and hope. You hear from, from Job now. On a background of suffering. Have you ever lived in a place where you're saying this season is just a background of suffering? But there is a statement and a flash of faith. How does that sound like for you? What does your statement of faith sound like? For Job, his statement of faith sounded like, my Redeemer lives. What does your statement of faith sound like in your suffering? I really believe that that's where you know Jesus more. That's where your perspective on who Christ is really gets really clear in suffering. If you put your eyes on the Lord. That even though you're suffering, trusting God keeps you alive. I was meeting with a client just yesterday and he's saying, you know what, Art, I've been going into, you know, I was very sick with, with diabetes and I was in and out of the hospital and 
And it was there in the hospital that I was rejecting the Lord. And I told the Lord, Lord, if you save my life, because the doctor said I was going to die. If you save my life, Lord, he said, I'm going to serve you for the rest of my life. He's a pastor now. And he said, you know what, Art? Serving the Lord has saved my life, has kept me alive. Man, impacted me. Serving the Lord has kept me alive. You know what it reminded me of? That just like Job, me and you have to learn what it means like to serve through the struggle. Do you know what it means to like serve in the struggle? Or does when the struggle comes, I ain't serving the Lord no more. And my commitment for God is gone. And in, in, in chapter 19, we see that Job is disappointed. He's let down and he's disillusioned. And I know that you've been disappointed in life before. You've been, someone's let you down. Someone, you had this illusion of this great thing and then someone failed you, man failed you. That you thought in life you would be somewhere and you're not there. Man was, will always let you down, but you can trust the Lord because He will never let you down. Let's read in chapter 19 what he says, And Job answered and said, He answers this, this huge accusation, this heavy accusation by saying this. As he's trusting in his Redeemer, he says, How long will you torment now my soul? How long are you going to torment my soul and break me in pieces with words? This is important here that we talk about the tongue, that we talk about words. Because they were breaking him in pieces with what? They were crushing him. They were being unsympathetic tormentors. Unsympathetic. If you want to be like Christ, be sympathetic. The Bible tells us that we have a high priest that sympathizes. <laughs> For our weaknesses. We don't have one that does not sympathize. We have one that sympathizes for our weaknesses. That's why when we say, you know, I don't feel bad for that person. Hey, what do you mean? <laughs> Are you sympathizing for their weakness? What did we learn last week? That grace is always available. Grace is always abundant. And grace is always appropriate. This entire week, the Lord has tested me with those three things that He gave to me in my study time. Wait, wait, Art, didn't I tell you that grace was appropriate? Didn't I tell you grace was available always? Didn't I tell you that grace was abounding now? And it really checks your attitude real quick. When you remember that that same grace was extended to you. But look what he says in verse 19. How long are you friends are not going to understand me at all and are going to insult me with words here? And words are insulting. And you're, aren't you ashamed of now treating me this way? <laughs> look, he says in verse here, three, these ten times you have reproached me or insulted me. You are not ashamed that you have wronged me? Aren't you embarrassed that you've been talking to me like this the whole time? What's important for us is that we surround with ourselves with friends. That we have friends that know and understand who God is. Because those are the friends that are going to uphold you in the fire. And I'm not saying you can't have non-believer friends. But you must surround yourself. And the closest friends to you are those that trust God. How is it ever that you're going to grow spiritually when you are, your closest friends to you do not know the Lord? Or are not walking to the Lord? That is now the recipe for destruction and for failure in your spiritual walk. You will never grow. No matter what you think. It's biblical. It's in the Bible. And let's read here verse 4. It says, And if indeed I have erred, my error remains with me. If I have sinned, that's, that's my problem. Let the Lord now accuse me and deal with me. You don't have to deal with me. You're not God. 
Let the Lord deal with me, he's saying here. Remains with me, if indeed you exalt yourself or you pride yourself against me and plead my disgrace against me, you're using my humiliation as a way that you're proving my sin. Verse 6, know then that God has wronged me and he has surrounded me with his net. Know this, it is God who has surrounded me with his net. God is the one that's doing this. You don't have to accuse me. You don't have to come and judge me. You don't have to come and try to blame me for this situation. You don't have to try to justify that my sin brought me here. You don't have to build a case against me. When someone is going through something, don't build a case against them. You want to build a case? Build a case, a strong case, a beautiful case of the grace of God. Build a beautiful case of the grace of God. Because grace will win when you point people to Jesus. Now let's read here in verse 7. If I cry out something wrong, I have not heard. If I cry out loud, there is no justice. No matter what I say, I'm wrong. I'm surrounded. I'm captured. He has fenced me up my way so that I cannot pass. And He has set darkness in my path. He feels that He is trapped in a net of suffering. And He cannot get out. And it's the Lord the one that's put Him there. It's the Lord that's put Him there. He has stripped me of my glory. Now from here, the following verses from verse now 8 all the way. To verse 12, we see how Job describes how he feels. Notice that in verse 8, he says, He has fenced me up. Now, I am captive. He feels, number 1, verse 8, captive. Verse now, number 9, he feels stripped or he feels dethroned of the place where he was. He feels like he regressed. From where he used to be. He says, He has fenced me up so that I cannot pass, and He has set darkness in my path. He has stripped me of my glory or dethroned now, this humbling experience that I'm going now. And He has taken the crown from my head. Taking the crown out. I used to be in a place of honor. Now I'm no longer in the place of honor. He breaks me down, verse 10, on every side, and I am gone. My hope he has uprooted like a tree. I was like a wall, and he has torn me down. He said he breaks me down on every side. I'm like a broken down wall now, or like an uprooted tree. Have you ever felt like a broken down wall or an uprooted tree? This is exactly how he feels. Now, verse 11, he says, He has also killed it, kindled his wrath against me. And he has counted, he counts me as one of his enemies, or I feel like I have a siege against me. And he's built up a road against me. His troops come together. I'm surrounded as well. And he's built up their road against me. They encamp or encamp all around my tent. I am surrounded now. I have nowhere to escape. I have nowhere to escape. Like a broken down wall, like an uprooted tree, like a person that's captive, like a person that's surrounded, like a person that is dethroned now. This is the way I feel, he's telling them. And in verse 13, he has removed my brothers far from me. He said, he even describes the bitter, the bitter results from him. And he says, my, my friends, my brothers, those that love me are far from me now. They have failed me. It says, far from me and my acquaintances are completely estranged from me. What does he feel in verse 13? In suffering, you will feel this, lonely. But just because you feel lonely doesn't mean that you're alone. A lot of people struggle with this, loneliness and suffering. And they feel like nobody cares. They feel like nobody loves them. He said, my friends are gone from me. I'm struggling with loneliness. Here from verse 14 and 15, my relatives have failed. 
and my close friends have forgotten me. Isn't this how sometimes we feel my family and my friends don't love me? I feel alone, like nobody cares. Those who dwell in my house, the people in my own house have rejected me, have despised me. Right here it says, and my maidservants count me as a stranger. Those people that used to serve me, they don't care what I have to say any longer. I am an alien in their sight. I am like a stranger now to them. I call my servants, but he gives no answer. Verse 16, I beg him with my mouth. I'm begging and nobody answers. I'm crying out and nobody's hearing me. I'm rejected. I'm despised. Verse 17. This is how bad it gets. Verse 17, it says, My breath is offensive to my wife. Man. Some of you ladies are going to write I'm going to write this. Send it to my husband right now. Man, your breath stinks, bro. He said, my breath stinks. Before my, I can't even get that right. My wife doesn't even want to talk to me because my breath smells. Now, look what it says here. And I am repulsive to the children of my own body. Nobody, even the youngest closest to me, don't want me. Nobody has my back. Even young children despise me. I will arise and they speak against me. It says here, all my close friends abhor me or hate me. And all those whom I love have turned against me. Everyone that I've loved have turned against me. You see? Verse 19, this is what he tells us in verse 20. My bones cling to my skin. I'm barely surviving. And, my, and to my flesh. And I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. You know what it means to escape from the skin of my teeth? He said, I have escaped death. I'm barely escaping death by the way that I'm living. Notice, remember this. We, we forget this. That it wasn't only an emotional loss. It's also a physical suffering. He's covered in boils. He's, this is painful. I'm barely surviving. You think you have something to complain about? You, have, you think you have something to stay home about? You see, what I love about Job here is that at the end, God restores everything to him because he endured. A lot of the times, we want the Lord to restore now. The Lord says, I need to keep you there a little longer so that I get glory. And if, if you're glorified in that net then I will keep you there for my sake. And you will learn who I am. You will learn who God is. Now he says this in verse 21 because now you're going to see how he's crying out for some kind of mercy in his friend's behalf. Have pity on me. Have pity on me, oh you my friends. Have mercy, please, friends. God struck me, it says, for the hand of God has struck me in verse 21. Why do you persecute me as God does? And are you not satisfied with my flesh? Have you not chewed me up enough now? Can you not just stop? Have you not chewed me up enough? Oh, that my words were written. I pray that my words, someone just writes them down and memorializes them and records them with an iron pen and, and, and lead forever that nobody forgets what I'm saying. I pray that somebody remembers my suffering. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and with lead forever. I don't want nobody to forget now this, this suffering that I'm going through. But now we see a flash, a ray, a beautiful now declaration, a triumphant proclamation of faith. How does it sound like for you? What does yours sound like? Because here is where the punchline is. 
Because he just talked about how he feels. He talked about how he feels. He talked about how he feels. <laughs> He's going to tell us what he knows. This is amazing. Because what you feel doesn't matter as much as what you know. Let's read verse 25. We can spend all night there. And it says this. For I feel. <laughs> For I what? For I know. Can we read that, say that together? For I what? For I know. No, you guys don't know it. For I know. For I know. Not for I feel, not for I think, not for I love, not for I doubt, not for I want, for I know. I like in the New Living Translation, it says, but as for me. Oh, this is amazing. Convinced, convicted. Fully convicted, fully convinced now. For I know that my Redeemer lives. This is amazing. And he shall stand at last on the earth. He has the final word and I can trust him. I know I have the certainty. This is what you should remind your husband, your wife, your relative, your co-worker, your boss. Don't you know, what do you know about what God's word says about who God is? What do you know? Don't tell me what you feel Tell me what you know. We know that his Redeemer lives. Now the word Redeemer, really quickly, let's study that word. What does it mean? Because some of us don't know. The Redeemer in that time or in that culture, in the Old Testament, we get a lot of examples of Redeemers. And it is known in that culture to be called the Goel, G-O-E-L, the Goel, the Redeemer. And it was one person that stood up to defend now another, to plead the cause or the case of someone else to avenge someone's wrong for them or someone that's done them harm, to acquit them or to consider them and pronounce them not guilty of any charges that had been laid against them. That is what a Redeemer does. It redeems them from that situation. Job knew that he had a Redeemer. Job knew that he had a Redeemer. Someone that can rescue him from his crisis. Someone that can rescue him from his despair. And from every accusation that was set against him. And we have to remember this. That, that is always considered the duty of that Goel. It was always considered the duty of that Redeemer. To not only redeem by price. To say, you know what, I'm going to pay the price to redeem this person. I'm going to pay the price and I'm going to purchase them back. I'm going to set them free from bondage. I'll pay their now price or their guilt or their what to do on their behalf. I will pay their price to set them free. That's what a redeemer would do. Not only do that, not only redeem by price, but also redeem by power. A redeemer would redeem by price. A redeemer would also redeem by power. And what would he do by power? He would go and, and really avenge now or declare innocent of those charges that were laid upon that person. Now these are two redemptions. The redemption by price and the redemption by power. Do you see a little glimpse right here of what Jesus did for you as your Redeemer? He fulfilled both of these for you. He fulfilled both of these for you. Christ did these both for you on the cross. By price, He redeemed you by paying the sacrifice and the judgment of our sins on the cross of Calvary. He redeemed you by price. 
And He redeemed you by power through His divine Spirit coming into our hearts and renewing our soul now as to belong to Him now. Christ has redeemed you at Calvary by price, and Christ has redeemed you in the empty tomb by power. He is your Redeemer. This is like a little Easter message here. What is He saying here? I know that what? My Redeemer, what is He saying? Lives. You don't have a dead Redeemer. You have a living Redeemer. Therefore, you have a living hope. There are three things I want you to remember when we talk about I know my Redeemer lives is when you're going through the darkest moments of your life. Remember this. Number one, I know I have a Redeemer. This is what I know. I know I have a Redeemer. Number one, I know I have a Redeemer. I am going through depressing times. I know I have a Redeemer. I'm going through heartbreak. I'm going through suffering. I'm going through family problems. I know I have a Redeemer. I'm going through discouragement. I know I have a Redeemer, number one. Number two, I know, I know, I know my Redeemer lives. This is, gives me living hope. I know I have a Redeemer, number one. I know, number two, my Redeemer lives. And number three, I love this, because I know, I know that because He lives, He can bring light to the darkest moments of my life. I know that because He lives, He can bring light to the darkest moments of my life. This is the things that you know. When you feel that you cannot handle the pain, focus on what you know. Because what you feel is not enough. It is what you know that gets you now into a relationship with the Lord where you're trusting Him and not you're, trusting, you're not trusting your feelings. I know this. He explained to us how he felt. But at the end of the day, he, he, he leaned into what he knew. And, and let's read it. What else he says? And he shall stand at last on the earth. And he says in verse 26, he's going to have the, the final word. He's in charge. And after my skin is destroyed or after I die, this I know. Again, this I know after I die. This I know underline that again. I love how he keeps telling us what he knows. Because he's going to tell us that he has a hope and he has a security that he knows of. This is what he knows now. Let's just continue reading this because it's important for us to understand this. This I know that in my flesh I shall see God. Wow, that's amazing. This I know that I'm going to see God. That when I die, I'm going to see God. This I know, that I have this hope, that I get to see God. Whom I shall see for myself. One day you are going to stand before God for yourself. No one's going to stand there for you initially. You're going to stand there and you're going to see Him for yourself. It's not going to, it's not going to be based off of you know, your parents or your pastor, or your church, you're going to see him for myself. And my eyes, my eyes shall behold, or shall comprehend, or shall see now in eternity the Lord, and, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. My eyes shall see, shall behold, and not another. I'm going to, my eyes are going to be so focused on the Lord, and not on anyone else. On that day, I'm going to behold him, and no one else. On that day, I'm going to see him and not another, no one else on that day. He had 
a confident expectation, I'm going to see God and not anyone else. Do you have that confident expectation today? Shall behold? But this is what I love how he sings this. How my heart yearns within me. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. You know what he's saying here? How overwhelmed I am at the thought of this. What does your heart yearn for today? What does it yearn for? For Job, it yearned to see God. Does your heart yearn to see God or to see something else? I will see him for, my, uh, for myself, he's saying. I will see him with my own eyes. And then he tells us, I am overwhelmed at the thought. Oh, how my heart yearns within me, exclamation point. What does your heart yearn for today? And you know why you have this bold confidence? Is because it was this, 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 this light that was shining of hope now. And this dark background of despair, yes. That he was saying, my Redeemer lives, and because he lives, I can see tomorrow. Notice that that is a song that we sing today. <laughs> and I know that my Redeemer lives. Isn't it interesting that in your moments of suffering, if you look to the Lord, he gives you a song? In your moments of suffering, if you look to the Lord, he gives you a psalm? He gives you a word? But where, what are you beholding in suffering? Are you beholding now the face of God? It is important that you behold, and the only way that you behold is if you're in the presence of God. The only way to behold the presence of God is if you're in prayer. Are you seeing Jesus in suffering? Because when you see Jesus in suffering, it changes your perspective. It changes your attitude. It changed Job right here. This moment was pivotal for the rest of the book of Job. Because it changed Job now in the midst of suffering. It changed his perspective because he saw the Lord. Now, verse 28, if you should say, how shall we persecute him since the root of the matter is found in me? Why do you keep saying, how are you going to continue persecuting me because you think it's my fault? Verse 29, be afraid of the sword for yourself. You want me to be scared? You be scared for the sword that's coming against you. <laughs> Job said, you're going to be held accountable. Your attitude is going to be held accountable. Your attitude deserves punishment, Job is going to tell them right now. It says, for wrath brings punishment of the sword. He's saying, your attitude deserves punishment in the way you have been talking to me. You, you will be held accountable. Listen to this, please, for your words. You're going to be held accountable for how you talk to me in my moment of suffering. This, this, this ought to put a little bit of fear in you. How do you talk to people when they're suffering? You're going to be held accountable to how you talk to them while they were suffering. It says that you may know that there is judgment. Do you not know that you're going to be judged for what you said? That's what he's telling them. That you're going to have to answer to God that there is a judgment for you too. What, they, what were they doing? They were slandering him with, what did he say in verse 1? With their mouth. They were slandering them as well with their words now. They were breaking him into pieces now, it says, now with what they were saying. It has been said before that the worst enemy of the church, the worst enemy of the church is the tongue. The worst enemy of the church is the tongue. Because it's the human tongue that has done more damage. It's the human tongue that has caused more heartbreaks than any other source of trouble. It's the tongue. 
right? The tongue, it, it cuts deeper than any kind of knife or sword. It cuts deeper. And this is exactly what was happening. Job said, know this, that you're going to be held accountable for your words. Because you have a false witness against me. A false witness. Let's go to Proverbs chapter 10 really quick. As we pause here, and we're going to go to Proverbs 10. And we're going to learn what the Lord says about our words. What the Lord says about our words. Because he's telling them, you will be held accountable for your words. We're at Proverbs chapter 10. And let's go to verse 19. As we read this, and it's interesting, as we were reading this, even this week, the Lord brought this to remembrance of the message. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, it says, In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Those that will talk a lot will end up sinning. <laughs> but he who restrains his lips is wise. You know how to harness the lips? The tongue, harness it. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The tongue of those that are right with God is choice silver. It is, it is one that stands out. The heart of the wicked is worth little. Why is it the heart? Because out of the heart, right, the mouth speaks. The lips of the righteous feed many. The, 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 the lips of those that are righteous are only strengthening and encouraging many. But fools die for lack of wisdom. And it was a lack of wisdom. Did these men have knowledge? Yes. But you know what they did not have? Was wisdom. And that's exactly what the Lord wants you to have. Knowledge is important. But wisdom is even more important. Wisdom is more important. Let's quickly read for, through verse through chapter 20 of Job, as we see that, that Zophar here is now anxious to really accuse him and give a sermon against Job. Then Zophar, the Nathamite, answered and said, Therefore my anxious thoughts make me answer because of the turmoil within me. I have to say something. My spirit prompts me to say something. I have heard the rebuke that reproaches me and the spirit of my understanding causes me to answer. I have to say something. I can't just keep quiet. Do you not know this of old since man was placed on earth? Don't you know this? Don't you get this? That the triumphing of the wicked is short. That the wicked will only triumph, only will succeed for a little while. And that the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment. Don't you know that the hypocrite and those that are wicked will only have short joy and short success? That through his audiness or through the pride of that wickedness, he mounts up the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds. Yes, he might think that his chin is up and his chest is out, but it says, yes, he will perish forever, that same person, like his own refuse. He was saying, no matter what you said, Joe, I just want you to remind you that the reason why you're in this is because you are a wicked person and they will only have small, short success like the one in your past. Verse 7, those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will fade away. He will be like a chased away, like a vision of the night. He will fade away. He will vanish like a vision. That wicked person is only going to have success for a little bit and then they'll vanish away. The eye that saw him will see him no more. No, he will his place behold him anymore. No, no longer will he have a place because he was frustrated here and he's speaking from frustration. Now he says, his children will seek the favor of the poor and his hands will restore his wealth. 
His own kids will be poor beggars. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it will lie down with him in dust. He thought one day he had strength, but his youth will run out quickly. Those, th though evil is sweet in his mouth, though the little evil that he planted in his mouth, though he, had a, he enjoyed it for a little while. That's how, that's how people enjoy sin for a little while, it says. And he hides it under his tongue. He, they might hide sin and wickedness under the tongue. Though he spares it and does not forsake it, but still keeps it in his mouth. Though that, that wicked person attaches and entangles himself with sin in their mouth. Look what it says. Yeah, his food and his stomach turn sour. That what he puts in his mouth. One day will, he will have to pay for that. One day he'll know that he's going to have to pay for that. It's going to become like a cobra venom within him. That sin that he's tasting, that he's savoring, that he's enjoying, one day it's going to cost them. He will swallow down riches and vomits them up again. He casts them out, it says, of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The viper's tongue will slay him. It will catch him. It will catch up to him. God will not let him keep down all that enjoyment that he thought he was doing in that sin, that wickedness. He will not see the streams, the rivers flowing with honey and cream. He's not going to see the best days of his life are not ahead of him. He will restore that which he labored. Everything that he worked for is not going to ever pay out for him. He will not swallow it down for the proceeds of his business. He will get no enjoyment. For he has, for he has oppressed and forsaken the poor. He has violently seized the house which he did not build. Notice that he's saying that he's going to be oppressed for oppressing the poor, for being wicked. Because he knows that no quietness in his heart, he will not save anything he desires. He will always be greedy, that person, and he will never be satisfied. Verse 20. He will have nothing that, that he dreamed of will ever remain. His prosperity will not endure. It will be short-lived. And he's saying, that's how your prosperity is, Job. It's short-lived. Nothing is left for him to eat. Therefore, his well-being is not last. In his, in his self-sufficiency will be in distress. His well-being is not going to last. His self-sufficiency is going to come to an end. And it tells us this. will be in distress. Every hand of misery will come against him. When he is about to fill his stomach, God will cast on him the fury of wrath and will rain it on him while he is eating. He will flee from the iron weapon. A brown's bowl will pierce him th th through. It is done and comes out of the body. Yes, the glittering point comes out of gal and terrors come upon him. He's going to run away, but he's going to be shot. And he's going to be pulled down from that error. And the terrors will come upon him. He's going to try to escape death and escape. And the arrow that's going to be shot at him is going to pull him back and strike him with blood. Total darkness is reserved for his treasures. What does that mean, total darkness? The treasures now that he has are thrown in darkness for the wicked. And this is what he's saying, are reserved for darkness. Verse 26. An unfanned fire will consume me. He's going to be consumed by fire, this wicked man. It shall go ill with him who is left in his tent. The heavens will reveal his iniquity and the earth will rise up against him. The increase of his house will depart and all his goods shall flow away in the day of his wrath. Everything that he worked for is going now to be vanished and it will not last. It will not endure. This is... The portion, or this is the reward from God for a wicked man. That is true. The people that are just living for today, that are living for their treasures today, this is the reward that God has for a wicked man. Was Job wicked? He was not wicked. 
But these are the rewards. These are that which is reserved for the wicked person that is living only for today. The heritage or the inheritance appointed to him by God. This is the end. For those that are wicked, this is what's appointed to that person by God. One of the things that we must remember as we're reading this book is that, that God will replace God will ultimately replace evil. He will, he will, he will, good will, will one day finally eclipse now evil. It will supersede the nature of evil that we live in. And all things will be fully made new. Job was living in a world of suffering. And we are living in a world of suffering. But one of the things that we can remember, one of the things that we can be mindful of, something that we can hold on to, and I want you to write this verse down, please, is Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 and 7, because this is what you have to look forward to. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 through 7. This is what it says. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. All things will be fully new in heaven. Right now our spirit is made new, but we still live in a fallen nature. Things will be perfect now. And he said to me, write these words. True are, the words are true and they are faithful. You can trust this. It's faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God and he shall be my son. Isn't this awesome? That one day, we know that we will not suffer any more pain as we are looking towards the hope of heaven. Because today, you and I can say, I'm suffering, yes, but on this journey, but this journey has me heaven bound. I'm heaven bound. Therefore, I can trust God. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you, God. Because in the journey of suffering, we remember we are heaven bound. And I pray, Lord, that we would remember not only that we can trust you, Lord, but also the direction. The direction of where our trust is placed, God. It's in you. It's in nothing else. I thank you, Lord, and we pray that you would be honored and glorified. That we would, Lord, face every situation by what we know, not what we feel. Today we know we have a Redeemer. We know that that Redeemer lives. We also know that because He lives, He can bring light in every moment of darkness of our lives. And we thank You because we know these things. In Jesus' name, and together we said, Amen.